0: This is The Guardian. This week, the government carried on trying to convince us that sensible Tory service has been resumed with Jeremy Hunt's first budget. We are following the plan, and the plan is working. Yeah. There were plans to help parents with childcare, new ideas for levelling up and the tightening up of benefit sanctions, but Keir Starmer insisted that nothing has changed.
1: A hopelessly divided party caught between a rock of decline and a hard place of their own economic recklessness.
0: So, where does this leave the grinding battle between the two main Westminster parties and, more importantly,
1: people's lives?
0: I'm John Harris, and you're listening to Politics Weekly UK for The Guardian. Joining me today are Miata Farmbuller, the Chief Executive of the New Economics Foundation and prospective Labour parliamentary candidate for Peckham, and the former Conservative Treasury Minister, David Gork. Hello to you both. Hello. Hi. Right, let's talk about the budget. Um, This was trailed somewhat as a boring budget. But on the face of it, I guess it did have policies that seemed reasonably politically savvy, not least those sizable changes to government help with the cost of childcare. Um, I suppose the intended message after a big flurry of government activity lately was that Rishi Sunak and Jeremy Hunt sit at the top of a government that wants to get stuff done. I was also struck, I suppose, by the sense that before Brexit, um, remember that, I always felt that there was a kind of cold, calculating pragmatism at the centre of conservative politics, even if it seemed ideological outwardly. That disappeared recently. (laughs) Uh, in a great deal of chaos, certainly towards the end. But it was present and correct on Wednesday. Um, There were some effective headlines in the budget. It's obvious that the economic picture remains trying, to say the least. But I suppose there is a sense of a government that is turning out to be a little bit more grown up than Labour recently has given the Conservatives credit for. What did you each make of today in the wider political context? David, first of all.
1: So, I thought in a, in a way it was a bit of a sort of microcosm of the sort of Sunak government. So, I, I agree with you, you know, broadly sensible, there were no big risks taken with the public finances. Um, they've had a bit of good news in terms of the economy um, being bigger than they expected. And that gave them a little bit more fiscal room. And they've spent that room largely on. You know, sensible things, I would argue in terms of uh, business taxes, the capital allowances. I think that's, a, that's, that, that, that makes sense. I personally prefer a lower corporation tax rate, but, but I can understand why they've gone with what they have done. Um, uh, and there's some sort of politically, you know, quite clever things there, childcare, trying to appeal to a sort of wider, uh, part of the audience. But I'm not sure that there's a sort of very obvious sort of clear political vision here. They're trying to do the right thing in terms of getting more people back to work. I'm not sure anything they've announced is going to be particularly transformative. But then again, I'm not sure they ever could.
0: Miata.
2: Yeah, look, I think the thing that really struck out to me was um, the OBR's projection that living standards are about to drop by 6% in the next two years, which is the biggest fall in living standards since records began. And if that's the analysis and the projection they saw, this should have been a big budget. And it should have been a big budget that was looking to tackle that reversal in living standards in the short term by offering more help on the cost of living. Um, so the Energy price guarantee remaining at 2,500 was a good move. But actually, when energy prices have doubled in the last two years and the energy support that the government was providing is about to end, there was little comfort for people with the cost of living crisis. And then on wages, nothing on public sector pay, which was really surprising. We will come you. on to
0: that in a moment, yeah.
2: And nothing on low pay. And then for me, the massive, massive missing bit was there was a lot of talk about a plan for growth. But where was the big plan for growth. And when you look across to what the EU are doing around their Green New Deal, when you look at what Biden is doing, um, there are big measures to try and kickstart the economy in a way that will build new industries, create jobs, revive communities. And I don't understand why they didn't grip that.
0: Um, Now, David mentioned a moment ago, uh, the absence of a a, a vivid sense of any plan. What are their guiding economic principles, as, as you understand it?
1: So look, I I think uh, actually to answer that and to come kind of come back to Miata's point, um, gotta remember fundamentally that Rishi Sunak is a is a fiscal conservative and they are worried about inflation. And you know, the reason why it isn't the type of budget that Miata is is asking for is in their minds, you know, inflation is a real problem. If you try to borrow more to sort of deal with cost of living. Uh, then that is only going to stoke inflation, interest rates will rise. Um, you know, the, 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 the problem with the economy is not a lack of demand, um, it is supply constraints, and you can't spend and borrow your way out of it.
0: As you see it, Miata, what ideologically is going on here, or not going on here? What's their sort of lodestar politically?
2: It's hard to say. I think safe pair of hands, you know, it's steady as you go. Um, we're doing right things. And I, you know, and I don't even think it's ideology. I think I, I think to be fair to them, it's a government that's just trying to get things done. They've identified barriers and they're trying to grip those barriers and do things that will translate into results. And, you know, and I hope it does. I generally hope it does for the sake of the country. The problem is the scale of the challenge we're facing is such That steady as you go, mediocrity, I don't think will cut it. I don't think it will give them the response. And the OBR's judgment on living standards is all you need to know about how far this budget has fallen versus where it needed to be.
0: We will come on to this towards the end, but isn't Keir Starmer's approach somewhat steady as she goes, given the scale of the economic challenge we face? He's not big on ambition and audacity, as far as I understand it.
2: Well, let's see. Uh, We we still need to see the detail. But, you know, to be fair to the Labour Party, these missions that it set out, you know, people might say, look, mother pineapple pie, who would disagree with this? But saying that you want to sustain growth um, that's highest in the G7, but critically, it's not just about the growth. For me, the really important thing is like growth for who? Growth for everyone in every part of the country. Now, that is, we've we've not achieved that, let's be clear, in the last 15 years. So that is a pretty stretching ambition. The proof will be in what's the detail that sits underneath that, and that's what we'll hear about in the next year.
0: Right. Let's talk about the detail or lack of it in this budget. Um, First of all, the main points. But I thought we'd start by talking about what was very obviously missing. Miata has mentioned the issue of public sector pay. We speak amid strikes. There are uh, teacher strikes. Teacher strike today. My kids are off school. Then about anybody else's.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Same here.
0: (laughs) Um, Nothing about public sector pay, David. Wasn't
1: even mentioned. Yeah. Interesting. And uh, look, I mean, it's consistent with the line that they've held all the way through, but they have got an issue in terms of inflation. I think if you're going to spend more on public sector pay, you need to find that money from somewhere um, and yeah, you could to have to find it in the tax system or spending elsewhere. I think it would have to be the tax system. But no, I, they may well have done something on that, but they've kind of held the line on that. They seem to be prepared to sort of stick that out. And I think it's going to be quite difficult because the problem, I mean, my argument on public sector pay has just been, well, hold on, have we got the people we need to deliver the public services that we require? You know, I'm not someone, I was a chief secretary to the Treasury, I understand the pressures. I don't believe in paying more than we have to, to to attract the the staff that we need uh, to deliver public services. But we've got a pretty tight labour market. Private sector pay is running well ahead of public sector pay and can you sustain that difference for very much longer without essentially seeing lots of people move from the public sector to the private sector? And then what happens to public services? And I think that's an argument that the government hasn't really been able to address.
0: No, no, it's it's much overlooked That I think public sector pay, I mean, understandably, is presented as a, a sort of cost of living issue, but it's also a future of the public services issue, as you say. Anyway, the other thing that, that struck me straight away as a notable absence from the budget was housing. Um, We are in the midst of a huge housing crisis. First-time buyers are in an awful predicament. The building of new houses is widely forecast to be to uh, be imminently grinding to a halt, the OBR, the Office of Budget Responsibility, says that property transactions are expected to fall by 20% because of low consumer confidence and squeezed incomes. And this is Tory ground. This is the great cause of the property-only democracy. Now, I would argue a large part of that issue is bound up with social housing and home ownership and home buying doesn't cover the whole of it. But nonetheless, that's another glaring omission Me at isn't it?
2: Yeah, really surprising. Um, it's, you know, it's not just the cost of housing, um, in the context where, as you say, it looks like we're about to have record low, um, house build, uh, this year, but it's also rents. Uh, you know, again, this comes back to the fact that I just don't think they did enough on the cost of living. And that's not just in the here and now. That's. For the medium term. Um, and it matters because if you are serious about growing the economy, if you're serious about doing all these supply side measures, people having a roof above their heads that they can afford is absolutely critical for workers. This is why the CBI, the FSB and others are talking about it. And the fact that it doesn't feature at all for me is a massive gap in probably a sea of quite a lot of gaps in their not very distinct plan.
0: And the housing crisis is partly a problem, David, of the government's own making. In the sense that they're the ones who, late last year, decided to get rid of mandatory house building targets.
1: I agree. I absolutely agree with that. Um, the problem is, is the Conservative backbenchers, such really? as the, no. the Prussia. <laughs> I, I live in the in the, in the Green Belt. I I get leaflets coming through from the Conservative Party and the Liberal Democrats, all about you know we're protecting the Green Belts. We're stopping these developments. Yeah, the Conservatives blame the local authority for planning, the Liberal Democrat local authority. The Liberal Democrats blame the uh, the government for the national targets. And now those targets have been dropped. Yeah, that is a real political problem. House building is falling very significantly. And part of this is to do with planning. And there is no appetite within the government for political reasons to address the planning issue
0: then it arguably cooks its own goose in the sense that you're going to have a lot of disenchanted voters at the next election who are living these, that issue, that, that lack of, of housing as a matter of daily experience. Anyway, let's talk Agreed. about, let's talk about uh, things that were in it. For a start, those announcements on childcare, pretty big pledge really, looks like a potential crowd pleaser, although it won't fully arrive for quite a while. Jeremy Hunt announced 30 hours of free weekly childcare for working parents that will be extended to cover children below the age of three. It'll eventually cover all children below the age of three, but over nine months old. There were also moves on, on extending or increasing the funding of wraparound childcare that happens in schools. Let's have a listen to what Jeremy Hunt said about childcare.
1: I don't want any parent with a child under five to be prevented from working if they want to, because it's damaging to our economy and unfair mainly to women. So today I announce... That in eligible households where all adults are working at least 16 hours, we will introduce 30 hours of free childcare, not just for three and four year olds, but for every single child over the age of nine months. Miata,
0: notwithstanding the Labour hat that you somewhat wear,
2: that's quite impressive stuff, isn't it? Listen, the fact that childcare is at the top of the agenda for me is good news. This is long overdue. Um, childcare costs are massively prohibitive. You know, you take a typical couple, it's about 30% of their income, Um Families here are paying something like four or five times the amount on childcare than other European countries like Germany, like Denmark, like Norway, like Iceland. So this is a good move that it's front and centre. I think the issues is will be in the implementation. So two things, extending uh, the 30 um, hours for 38 hours is a start. But that is not enough childcare for most families that are working full time. But the bigger problem is unless you put enough investment into a sector, which, by the way, is collapsing, the number of providers that are falling over is at record levels. If you don't put enough money into that, if you're not providing enough of a subsidy and the Chancellor talked about 200 million, which is like a drop in the ocean, what you're doing is you're increasing demand and the sector won't be able to cope and it will collapse and therefore, the very families that you're trying to help, the mothers that you're trying to get into work will be in a worse position. So for me, this is one where the headline, we're all absolutely ecstatic about childcare there. I say this as a mother of three kids under the age of uh, eight, um, got young kids. But unless they put the money in to get the sector to work and there are big supply side reforms that I think we also need, this will not deliver what we want. And I, I could actually make it worse.
0: Briefly, David, you're not convinced, I think I'm right in saying, that uh, this reform will have huge effects on the labour market and the supply of people into jobs.
1: Yeah, I I think that's probably right. I mean, there's there's a case for it. It makes, you know, it'll improve uh, a lot of people's lives. There's certainly a political case for it. But if the objective is to increase the labour market very, very significantly, I'm not sure the evidence is clear that this will have that effect. Uh, I mean, it, 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 will, it will have an effect, and it'll have a positive effect. But whether it will have a positive re- effect that you know, reflects how expensive this is to the exchequer, I, I'm I'm a bit sceptical. I have to say.
0: Politically, the Conservatives have somewhat stolen a showpiece Labour policy, haven't they? Here. Yeah.
2: Well, Labour, we're going to go big on childcare. Um, It's sort of central to uh, the mission to cre- cre- create opportunity for um, all uh, children. But, you know, for me, we're not at the end point. You know, I look over to the Nordic countries, free universal childcare, Um And yes, that requires investment. But the upside, so David talks about women going to the labour market. That's only one of the upsides. Um, I've talked about the kind of punitive cost of this for people who are already in the labour market. But critically, it massively improves life chances for children. And so for me, the combined impacts of that, the modelling suggest, is the reason why Germany, other Nordic countries say, actually, it's worth us investing in childcare, so that it's a small proportion of people's um, incomes, so they can go into work, because the net benefit is absolutely clear for us as a society. And that's where I'd like us to get to.
0: Okay, let's go through another couple of notable inclusions in the budget. Uh, we should also talk about what the government terms investment zones, which are all about tax breaks and other benefits for 12 areas across the UK, which will be funded to the tune of £80 million each over the next five years. All of them, I think it's fair to say, are in the North and Midlands. Tied to what Jeremy Hunt called innovation clusters, the idea being I think that those, these investment zones are in close proximity to universities so that you get that sort of combination of economic activity being sparked really by what's going on in higher education not again not bad I was quite struck by that 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 after all this talk of leveling up um and things like uh, oh the future high streets fund I think there is something called the leveling up fund which always struck me as sort of Dancing on the surface of the problem really that if levelling that was going to happen it would have to involve industrial innovation and higher education centrally as nice as it is to dirt your local high street in that sense we could you know there's an argument to be had about how much financial help these low tax zones actually involve and whether they're going to work but nonetheless that looks more like credible leveling up policy than just about anything i've seen so
1: far One one of the things i've always slightly worried about leveling up is that there's always been a degree of sort of nostalgiaism about it and it's about you know bringing back to what we you know once were and and having the factories etc you know it's a kind of a sort of let's you know let's go back to to a different type of economy and if you're going to do leveling up it's got to be forward looking and I agree with you you know tying it in with higher education institutions you know innovation that has to be the right the right way forward um, I've, I suppose two quibbles I, I might make. One is there is always a concern with investment zones. Is it, does this just lead to displacement? You know, does it just move jobs and investment from one northern city to another northern city? And the second point, which is, yes, do this as part of leveling up, but let's not also forget the potential of places like Cambridge and Oxford. Um, and yeah, you know, we've got to, you know, the, the, the shortage of laboratory s- space in around those cities is, is really hindering us. Um, but to be fair, there is a sort of hint in the, in, in the red book that there's an announcement to come on this.
0: I'll have to be quick here, Miata, but I don't know. I, I a sort of crass question. Marks out of 10 or something for how, how convincing you thought that announcement was. I mean, there is a bit more substance to it, isn't there? Than what yeah. we've seen on leveling up so far.
2: There is, um, I'd give it a sort of five, if I'm being generous out of ten. And the reason I say that is partly the displacement point, but the more fundamental point is unless you are doing things like investing in infrastructure, investing in transport, investing in skills, investing in all the foundational stuff businesses need, it won't have the impact that you want. And then the critical thing is, let's remember in a lot of these, uh, local economies, the biggest, uh, you know, generator of jobs, uh, are things that are like not that sexy pedestrian economies, you know, things like retail, hospitality, public services that are still low paid and low productivity. And for me, that's what you have to crack. That's what you've got to invest if you're serious about levelling up. And investment zones don't do that. Um, right.
0: He, Jeremy Hunt, the Chancellor, talked a lot, didn't he, about a uh... Getting people into work who aren't in work at the moment, which then inevitably brought him into the question of the the benefit system in two different ways. He talked about changes to disability benefits, supposedly to allow more disabled people to find work. The end of the infamous work capability assessment. And then he announced something very significant. Tougher requirements, as he would put it, to look for work and increased job support for lead child carers on universal credit. A tightening of the of the benefit sanctions regime, and I grimaced when I heard that because I just instantly picture a great trail of human wreckage. I have to be honest. David may disagree. We've had we've had arguments about this in the past.
1: Disagreements, John. Yes. Um, yes. Now, look, first of all, I think that yeah, the, the, the focus of getting more people into work has to be right. I think you could actually you could probably do more in this area than than will result from childcare. I accept. Beata's point, there's more to childcare than just getting people into work. But that was, that was the focus of, of the chancellor today. But look, in this area, more support for people, you know, they're spending more money on, on increasing the capacity of DWP work coaches to help people into work. I think that's perfectly sensible. Uh, and uh, I think that's, that's, that's a good move, particularly in these circumstances. I think there's also a recognition that the world of work has change there's more that you can do sitting at home that was
0: mentioned that was mentioned and
1: therefore the work capability test of the sort of right you know you're only going to get this money if you're not capable of doing work when in fact you know people may well be capable of doing work in the the new environment so i think i think the government's making quite a persuasive case on this but but on yeah, sorry to come to your point on sanctions john i do think if you're going to have a a sort of welfare system that is focused on helping people into work you have got to have some conditionality.
2: What I'd add to that is the emerging evidence is that sanctions doesn't work. DWP has been really coy um, about sharing its own analysis and evidence. Um, I think they're being forced to And I think the evidence, because that's what we've seen in other countries, is that sanctions doesn't work. And for me, you know, if you want to incentivize and get people working, you need to provide a package of support, which is why actually I'm interested in the universal support. I'm interested in the £4,000 per person they're talking about to help people into work. I think that's a positive thing. You know, we now currently have people on universal credit, 90% of which can't afford the essentials. That means they're always in crisis. So, your ability to be able to engage in the labor market in a sensible way, to get jobs that have progression opportunities and long term prospects rather than recycle, is just not baked into the system.
0: Okay, before we move on, uh, it's worth just rattling through a few other measures that were announced in the budget. Changes to the tax regime for pensions for higher earners, among other things, to try and ensure that um, highly paid NHS consultants remain in their jobs through their 50s and 60s and don't then just uh, end up on the golf course all day. Also, um, quite creditably, actually, uh, Hunt announced the end of punishing charges on prepayment meters, an issue that a lot of noise has been made about recently. He acted on that. And I've written, I wrote a comment piece for The Guardian in January about what a dire state swimming pools are in up and down the country and leisure centers and there was a new package of support for them
1: it just clearly proves that your columns are red john
0: it's true (laughs) it's true they have a huge political effect i'm telling you
1: it's a it's a personal triumph for you
0: (laughs) okay let's pause for a minute as i said when we come back we will be looking at uh, what this budget means for both parties in the context of bigger picture analysis
2: The wait is over and we are back for series two of pop culture with me, Shantae Joseph. We'll dive into the biggest pop culture stories of the week again from Megan and Harry. And this is why sort of turning Harry and Megan into polarizing
1: figures ticks a lot of boxes because it just drives clicks. To Rihanna.
2: Rihanna rocks up at about 1 she just swans in like she's the most ordinary person in the world just running a couple of minutes late and of course the chaos of my life I meet someone I show my friends they're like "Mm, yeah it's okay four weeks later I'm sliding down the wall crying one (laughs) week later I message my friends I met you guys this is how I dated 11 people in one year listen now wherever you get your podcasts
0: Welcome back. Um, now we're talking about the budget um, in the context of the ongoing political battle in Westminster between uh, Labour and the Tories. Um, it's worth remembering that what Jeremy Hunt announced on Wednesday follows on, notwithstanding his autumn, his emergency autumn statement from the mini budget in September. Seems like only yesterday, a fairly disastrous experiment on the part of Liz Truss and her Chancellor Kwasi Kwarteng that saw, as we all know, interest rates rocket the pound plummet uh, and a huge, huge sense of threat to the UK economy and the public finances in the form of of what was going on in the bond market all of a sudden. Sunak's project clearly is very much that his government has to be seen to turn around the Tory party in short order. And I suppose he would like to think of this budget as one of the key starting points. But at the same time, let's not forget the big picture and what life actually feels like. Inflation might be forecast to come down to 2.9%, but people's household budgets remain impossible. The holding of tax thresholds will soon kick, t- will soon kick in. HMRC has estimated that six point one million people will pay higher or additional rate tax in twenty two to twenty three as a fifty percent increase on twenty nineteen to twenty. The government's own growth forecasts have been downgraded. So what may, I think, turn out to be the central question at the next election, do you feel better off than you were 13 years ago, remains a very highly charged, ever-present question in politics. Nonetheless, relative to the Truss-Kwarteng period and the Boris Johnson period, for that matter, I suppose what this budget showed you, and I mentioned this a moment ago, was a more measured, careful, electorally sensitive leadership style. And I wanted to ask you, David, a simple question. Do you feel you've got your party back? I don't know whether you think of it as your party anymore. I think you probably do.
1: I, I, I still do, although, um, you know, I'm no longer a member of it and uh, I haven't voted for it for a little while. The problem with the Conservative Party is that it has its kind of good days and its bad days. And yeah, every time so, you know, Rishi Sunak sort of takes a sort of grown up approach to the Northern Ireland Protocol uh, and then comes forward with the illegal immigration bill. You know, so sort of cheer followed by boo. But today, look, was a pretty grown-up, sensible set of measures. And and there wasn't anything there that you kind of looked at and thought, you know, well, this is clearly bonkers. And it wasn't (laughs) wasn't taking huge risks with the public finances. Could have been more cautious.
0: But in general, looking at the way this government in the last sort of three or four weeks has sort of acted out its politics and its plan, I suppose this again goes to this question of a a sort of set of low expectations given what preceded it. But clearly it's been moving according to an old-fashioned grid. So he did the Northern Ireland Protocol – then he did the so-called Ill- illegal immigration bill, and on today's grid, I suppose it says childcare or something like that, you know. And you're dealing with a much more measured, less chaotic, more adult sort of politics.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Sorry, I don't want to in any way disagree with that point, but no, I, I, I think that's right. I'm struck that in the opinion polls, Rishi Sunak is is going upwards, and
0: the Tory party uh, remains. The much Tory where it's party been.
1: remains. Much where it's been, and and it, it, I think for a while the Tory Party was dragging Rishi Sunak down. Uh, to some extent, he sort of freed himself from that. I still worry about where you know the the centre of gravity is within the Conservative Party. Um, but at the moment, is it able to deliver you know pretty competent government? I, th- I think you know certainly more so than at any time over the last um, three or four years. It still has to sort of pander to particular aspects, you know. Hence the illegal immigration bill, uh, and what have you. Hence the sort of culture war attack on Gary Lineker. Yeah, I, I wish that bit wasn't wasn't there. So every time I kind of warm towards Rishi Sunak, then then some conservative backbencher pops up that makes me think, oh, well, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they're still not there.
0: <laughs> and just to echo what David said a moment ago, I don't want anyone to feel that I'm. Uh looking at the modern Conservative Party through completely rose-tinted glasses here in the sense that all that this great technocratic managerialist reinvention has happened. Because as you've said, oh, you get a day like this and then tomorrow it'll be Samela Braverman or God forbid, 30p Lee Anderson and off we will go back into a much more unhinged... Uh, jo- John, it's,
1: it's pretty clear you're, you're, you're looking for the job of being the government's swing balls I <laughs> just try that's, and be a that, bit that's, more... That's what's happening. We, we <laughs> all can all see it. We can all see it. It's
0: just one of my calling cards, David i always trying to be a bit more open and uh, generous to conservative politics and politicians than, than, the, than some of my colleagues, shall we say. Anyway, let's talk about the Labour Party. This is what Keir Starmer said today about uh, what's happened to some of the policies that the Labour Party has been floating over the last year or so. Over the course of the whole cost of living crisis, time and again, it's Labour who bring the government yeah. not yeah. just to its senses, yeah. but to our position. Yeah. Who first pushed for the energy price guarantee? Labour. Who first called for a proper windfall tax?
2: Labour. Who first stood by people on prepayment metres? Labour. And
1: who first said we should freeze the price guarantee this April? Labour.
0: And and we can go on, because it's also Labour that first committed to
2: extending the fuel duty cut.
0: Miata, the Labour Party's a bit stuck here, isn't it? Two years to go, there's a lot more that that, uh, the Conservative Party could steal.
2: Well, in some respects, that's why they have held back. You know, there's been a lot of heat on, I think, the party to set out its soul, say what it would do about things. But the reason why you don't do that two years before a general election is because your ideas can uh, be stolen. Uh, but, you know, for me, I think there are, there are differences in priority and choices um, that we're seeing from the things that Labour signalling and some of the things uh, that the government has done. You know, I take, for example, that green investment bit, which I think is absolutely fundamental. I think, by the way, that's how we level up the country. I think that's how we drive up living standards. You know, Labour are trying to move in the direction of where Biden is. Their 28 billion a year green pledge is very akin to the sorts of investment package that we've seen in uh, the US and, uh, the, and Europe. And that's something that, for whatever reason, the government hasn't entered into that space. That might change. I hope for the good of the country, it does change. But, you know, there are also different choices about who you are doing things for. Um, and I think that's where Labour will try and tell a story about we've got to get the economy to work for people from the middle to the bottom up. And that requires a different set of choices about how you drive the economy.
0: You say that, David, I wonder... Um... You may have seen this. The Economist magazine about three, four weeks ago ran a column about what it called heavesianism. And it came up with this, this sort of fusion of Rachel Rees and Jeremy Hunt in the same way that they used to talk about Buttskill, Rab Butler meets Hugh School, And the idea that the two main Westminster parties were now surprisingly close on the economic fundamentals. Do you buy that idea? That there is a sort of convergence going
1: on somewhat at the moment? I think there is something in that and and both parties of course will come forward with lots of reasons why it's not true and they'll sort of point to particular uh, areas but look, I think there are some similarities in terms of temperament between Rishi Sunak and Keir Starmer and, and to some extent Jeremy Hunt and Rachel Reeves you know I think both parties have sort of reached the view that there are certain topics that you stay clear of yeah uh, so neither of them particularly want to You know, focus on the thing I think would make the biggest difference to our economy, which would be repairing our relation, properly repairing our relationship with the European Union. Both of them are not particularly sort of that ideological in terms of attitude to the state. So, you know, so Labour aren't advocating wholesale nationalisation. Uh, the Conservatives aren't advocating a kind of Liz Truss style small state. Both are quite managerial in, in their approach.
0: And they're both outwardly fiscally conservative as well. They both want to yes, be seen as, as yes, parties yes, that are that's... desperately worried about the state of the public finances.
1: Yes, true. And although neither of them, you know, interestingly, you know, the Conservatives want to present themselves as being very fiscally conservative. Actually, we've got a fairly loose fiscal rule, which they're only just meeting. Uh, but, but you know, Labour also, I mean, I think there's an interesting thing as to quite how Labour will square the circle between their 28. 28- Billion pounds of green investment and sort of fiscal conservatism. Yeah,
0: so Miata, you'd presumably like the Labour Party to be a bit more radical than that implies, wouldn't you?
2: Yeah, because you know, not not for ideological reasons, but just because I think the times demand it. You know, I yeah, you know, I come back. It is unprecedented to have living standards not having bud for what will be 15 years. And it's very possible we're going into an election where living standards will be lower than they were in 2008. I mean, it's unbelievable. You chuck in the complete collapse of public services, whether it's our hospitals, our schools, our care system, and then a climate crisis. I just don't think we can be anything other than ambitious. And so for me, look, time will tell. You know, I think I think the missions that Labour has set out, does signal ambition. Um I think they are right to hold out filling in the blanks because what they've learned is if you do that, your ideas get nicked. Um, but but you know, as we get into election, for me they're talking about the right issues, they're talking about the right areas. And I hope there will be a prospectus that stands up to that. Not for any reason, but I just don't think the country can tolerate another five to ten years unless there's genuine change in the areas that we have not known requires change.
0: Last point was I was watching the budget today I suppose my instinctive reaction was perhaps I felt the gap between the two parties which as David said a moment ago at the moment in opinion polls is is very very wide I felt it I felt it shrink a bit I felt there's a sort of potential narrowing here in the sense that you are seeing uh, this more level-headed grown-up responsible Conservatives in relative to what we've had recently. And therefore, inevitably, that implies a, a tightening of the battle looking ahead to the next election. Do you buy that?
1: Yeah, I, I think I do. Look, let's make this positive point. At the next election, both parties are going to be led by people who are much more suitable to be Prime Minister than either of their predecessors. Um, you know, The choice in 2019 between Boris Johnson and Jeremy Corbyn was, I think, the worst that was ever offered. I suppose, you know, however difficult things are, and they are difficult for the economy, that is at least a step forward for the country.
0: So in that sense, the era of 20-point gaps between Labour and the Conservatives will turn out to have been short-lived.
1: Uh, now, whether that feeds... So I, look, I think the Conservatives will make a bit of bit of a recovery in the polls as we get closer there. But uh, as Miato has pointed out, living standards are going to be, you know, continuing to fall. This is not going to be an easy... Climate. I think Labour will win the next election, but my best guess is is that it, they'll have a small majority. Um, I don't think it's going to be the, the landslide that the polls the moment suggest.
0: Matter a bit of tightening in the polls, probably be a good thing in the sense that it would uh, it would get rid of any complacency that there is in the labour in the Labour Party at the moment, and and perhaps the party might start to up its game a little bit.
2: Well, I definitely don't get a sense that there's complacency. I think everyone expects polls to tighten. You know, even the landslide in 1997, there was a tightening, a big tightening before that election. So I think that's the direction of travel. And, you know, in the end, for me, it will be an election around who has the answers to the problem the country faces. And we've talked a lot about the Conservatives nicking, you know, Labour's um, ideas. And there is something about a government that is tired, that is out of ideas, uh, that's been, you know, running on empty for a number of years. And if they don't have a prospectus, that actually meets the scale of the challenge that will be ahead of us. I think that's a genuine problem. And I think on the other side, what Labour now needs to do is it's set out its mission, which goes to the heart of the issues that I think the country does need to grapple with. They now need to set out a proper plan about how they will respond to these things. I think if they do that, I think the country is waiting for that.
0: We will be talking about such things in the ensuing weeks. Right. Thank you both for joining us today. Thank you, Miata. Thank you, David.
2: Thank you Thank for you. having me.
0: And thank you to you for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. As I always say, if you did, make sure you subscribe to Politics Weekly the UK wherever you get your podcasts and even better, leave us a review. You can listen to the podcast while your kids are now in Jeremy Hunt's highly expensive, generous childcare, I suppose, as and when that arrives. This episode was produced by Frankie Toby. The music is by Axel Cucutier. The executive producers are Maz Ebtarhaj and Nicole Jackson.